Section 24 of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. John, Volume 2, by J.C. Ryle. Chapter 11, verses 47 to 57. Wickedness of man's natural heart, blind ignorance of God's enemies, importance often attached by bad men to ceremonial. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. John chapter 11, verses 47 to 57. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees in a council, and said, What do we, for this man doeth many miracles? If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up into Jerusalem, before the Passover, to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves, as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that, if any man knew where he were, he should show it, that they might take him. These concluding verses of the eleventh chapter of St. John contain a melancholy picture of human nature. As we turn away from Jesus Christ and the grave at Bethany, and look at Jerusalem and the rulers of the Jews, we may well say, Lord, what is man? We should observe, for one thing in these verses, the desperate wickedness of man's natural heart. A mighty miracle was wrought within easy walk of Jerusalem. A man four days dead was raised to life in the sight of many witnesses. The fact was unmistakable and could not be denied. And yet the chief priests and Pharisees would not believe that he who did this miracle ought to be received as the Messiah. In the face of overwhelming evidence, they shut their eyes and refused to be convinced. This man, they admitted, does many miracles. But so far from yielding to this testimony, they only plunged into further wickedness and took counsel to put him to death. Great, indeed, is the power of unbelief. Let us beware of supposing that miracles alone have any power to convert men's souls and to make them Christian. The idea is a complete delusion. To fancy, as some do, that if they saw something wonderful done before their eyes in confirmation of the gospel, they would at once cast off all indecision and serve Christ, is a mere idle dream. It is the grace of the Spirit in our hearts, and not miracles, that our souls require. The Jews of our Lord's Day are a standing proof to mankind that men may see signs and wonders, and yet remain hard as stone. It is a deep and true saying, If men believe not Moses and the prophets, neither would they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. We must never wonder if we see abounding unbelief in our own times and around our own homes. It may seem at first inexplicable to us how men cannot see the truth which seems so clear to ourselves and do not receive the gospel which appears so worthy of acceptation. But the plain truth is that man's unbelief is a far more deeply seated disease than it is generally reckoned. It is proof against the logic of facts 
against reasoning, against argument, against moral suasion. Nothing can melt it down but the grace of God. If we ourselves believe, we can never be too thankful. But we must never count it a strange thing if we see many of our fellow Christians just as hardened and unbelieving as the Jews. We should observe, for another thing, the blind ignorance with which God's enemies often act and reason. These rulers of the Jews said to one another, If we let this Christ alone, we shall be ruined. If we do not stop his course and make an end of his miracles, the Romans will interfere and make an end of our nation. Never, the event afterward proved, was there a more short-sighted and erring judgment than this. They rushed madly on the path they had chosen, and the very thing they feared came to pass. They did not leave our Lord alone, but crucified and slew him. And what happened then? After a few years, the very calamity they had dreaded took place. The Roman armies did come, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, and carried away the whole nation into captivity. The well-read Christian need hardly be reminded of many such like things in the history of Christ's church. The Roman emperors persecuted the Christians in the first three centuries and thought it a positive duty not to let them alone. But the more they persecuted them, the more they increased. The blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. The English papists, in the days of Queen Mary, persecuted the Protestants and thought that truth was in danger if they were let alone. But the more they burned our forefathers, the more they confirmed men's minds in steadfast attachment to the doctrines of the Reformation. In short, the words of the second psalm are continually verified in this world. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. But he that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. God can make the designs of his enemies work together for the good of his people, and cause the wrath of man to praise him. In days of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, believers may rest patiently in the Lord. The very things that at one time seem likely to hurt them shall prove in the end to be for their gain. We should observe, lastly, what importance bad men sometimes attach to outward ceremonial while their hearts are full of sin. We are told that many Jews went up out of the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. The most of them, it may be feared, neither knew nor cared anything about inward purity of heart. They made much ado about the washings and fastings and aesthetic observances which form the essence of popular Jewish religion in our Lord's time, and yet they were willing in a very few days to shed innocent blood. Strange as it may appear, these very sticklers for outward sanctification were found ready to do the will of the Pharisees and to put their own Messiah to a violent death. Extremes like this meeting together in the same person are, unhappily, far from uncommon. Experience shows that a bad conscience will often try to satisfy itself by a show of zeal for the cause of religion, while the weightier matters of the faith are entirely neglected. The very same man who is ready to compass sea and land to attain ceremonial purity is often the very man who, if he had fit opportunity, would not shrink from helping to crucify Christ. Startling as these assertions may seem, they are abundantly borne out by plain facts. The cities where Lent is kept at this day with the most extravagant strictness are the very cities where the carnival after Lent is a season of glaring excess and immorality. The people in some parts of Christendom, who make much ado one week about fasting and priestly absolution, are the very people who another week will think nothing of murder. These things are simple realities. The hideous inconsistency of the Jewish formalists in our Lord's time has never been without a long succession of followers. 
Let us settle it firmly in our minds that a religion which expends itself in zeal for outward formalities is utterly worthless in God's sight. The purity that God desires to see is not the purity of bodily washing and fasting, of holy water and self-imposed asceticism, but purity of heart. Will, worship, and ceremonialism may satisfy the flesh, but they do not tend to promote real godliness. The standard of Christ's kingdom must be sought in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Notes, John chapter 11, verses 47 to 57. Verse 47. Then gathered priests, Pharisees, council. This council was probably the great Sanhedrin, or consultative assembly of the Jewish church. It was for purely ecclesiastical, and not for civil or political purposes. It is the same assembly before which it is conjectured with much show of reason, our Lord made his defense in the fifth chapter of this gospel. On receiving the tidings of the astonishing miracle which had been wrought at Bethany, our Lord's bitterest enemies, the chief priests and Pharisees, seem to have been alarmed and enraged, and to have felt the absolute necessity of taking decided measures to check our Lord's progress. Ecclesiastical rulers, unhappily, are often the foremost enemies of the gospel. And said, What do we? This question indicates perplexity and irritation. What are we about? Are we going to sit still and let this new teacher carry all before him? What is the use of trifling with this new heresy? We are doing nothing effectual to check it. It grows, and we let it alone. For this man doeth many miracles. This is a marvelous admission. Even our Lord's worst enemies confess that our Lord did miracles, and many miracles. Can we doubt that they would have denied the truth of his miracles if they could? But they do not seem to have attempted it. They were too many, too public, and too thoroughly witnessed for them to dare to deny them. How, in the face of this fact, modern infidels and skeptics can talk of our Lord's miracles as being impostures and delusions, they would do well to explain. If the Pharisees who lived in our Lord's time, and who moved heaven and earth to oppose his progress, never dared to dispute the fact that he worked miracles, it is absurd to begin denying his miracles now, after eighteen centuries have passed away. Let us note the desperate hardness and wickedness of man's heart. Even the sight of miracles will not convert anyone without the renewing grace of the Holy Ghost. Brentius remarks that the simplest answer to the question of this verse ought to have been, Our duty is to believe at once that this worker of many miracles is the Christ of God. Verse 48. If we let him thus alone. This means... If we continue to treat him as we do now, and take no more active measures to put him down, if we only dispute and reason and argue and cavil and denounce him, but let him have his liberty, let him go where he pleases, let him do what he pleases, and preach what he pleases. Thus can only mean, as at present and hitherto. All men will believe on him. This means the bulk of the population will believe that he is what he professes to be, the promised Messiah. The number of his adherents will increase, and faith in his Messiahship will become contagious and spread all over Palestine. The word all in this sentence must evidently not be taken literally. It only means the great mass of the people. It is like all men come unto him, said by the angry disciples of John the Baptist about Christ, John chapter 3, verse 36. 
when men lose their tempers and talk in passion, they are very apt to use exaggerated expressions. The Romans come, take away, place nation. The process of reasoning by which the Pharisees arrived at this conclusion was probably something of this kind. This man, if left alone, will gather round him a crowd of adherents, who will proclaim him a leader and king. This our governors, the Romans, will hear, and consider it a rebellion against their authority. Then they will send an army, deal with us as rebels, destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and carry away the whole Jewish nation, as the Babylonians did, into captivity. In this wretched argument it is difficult to say which appears most prominent, ignorance or unbelief. It was an ignorant argument. The Pharisees ought to have known well that nothing was further from our Lord's teaching than the idea of an earthly kingdom supported by an armed force. He always proclaimed that his kingdom was not of this world and not temporal, like Solomon's or David's. He had never hinted at any deliverance from the Roman authority. He distinctly taught men to render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's, and had distinctly refused, when appealed to, to be a judge or divider among the Jews. Such a person, therefore, was not the least likely to excite the jealousy of the Romans. It was an unbelieving argument. The Pharisees ought to have believed that the Romans could never have conquered and put down our Lord and his adherents, if he really was the Messiah, and could work miracles at his will. The Philistines could not overcome David, and the Romans could not have overcome David's greater son. By their own showing, the Jewish nation would have had protection enough in the miracle-working power of our Lord. That there was an expectation throughout the East, at the time of our Lord's ministry, that some remarkable person was about to arise and become a great leader, is mentioned by Roman historians, but there is no evidence that the Roman government ever showed jealousy of anyone who was merely a religious teacher, like our Lord, and did not interfere with the civil power. The plain truth is that this saying of the Pharisees looks like an excuse, caught up as a weapon against our Lord, and a pretext for stirring up enmity against him. What they really hated was our Lord's doctrine, which exposed their own system and weakened their authority. They felt that their craft was in danger. By not daring to say this publicly, they pretended a fear that he would excite the jealousy of the Romans and endanger the whole nation. They did just the same when they finally accused him to Pilate as one that stirred up sedition and made himself a king. It is no uncommon thing for wicked people to assign very untrue reasons for their conduct and to keep back and conceal their true motives. Demetrius and his friends at Ephesus said that the temple of the great goddess Diana was in danger when in reality it was their own craft and their own wealth. The Jews at Thessalonica, who persecuted Paul, pretended great zeal for the decrees of Caesar, when their real motive was hatred of Christ's gospel. The Pharisees here pretended fear of the Romans, when in reality they found the growing influence of Jesus pulling down their own power over the people. Calvin observes, they double their wickedness by a plausible disguise, their zeal for the public good. The fear that chiefly distressed them was that their own tyranny should be destroyed, but they pretended to be anxious about the temple and worship of God. Bucer compares the Pharisees' pretended fear of the Romans to the absurd fears of the consequence of printing and literature which the Papists used to express at the period of the Reformation. Flacius remarks that, through fear of Caesar, God is despised and his son crucified, and this under pretext of preserving religion, the temple, and the nation. Human wisdom preserves itself by appeasing man and offending God. Ferris remarks that the council entirely forgot that rulers, whether the Romans or any others, 
are not a terror to good works, but to evil. If the Jews had believed and obeyed God, they had nothing to fear. That the leading Jews at Jerusalem had a strong suspicion that Jesus really was the Messiah, in spite of all their outrageous enmity and unbelief, is evident not only from comparison of other places, but from their nervous anxiety to get rid of him. They knew that Daniel's seventy weeks were run out. They could not deny the miracles that Jesus did, but they dared not follow out their convictions and draw the conclusions they ought to have drawn. They willingly shut their eyes against light. How miserably mistaken the policy of the Pharisees proved to be, it is needless to say. If they had let Jesus alone and allowed his gospel to be received and believed, Jerusalem, humanly speaking, might have stood to this day, and the Jews might have been more mighty and prosperous than in the days of Solomon. By not letting Jesus alone, and by killing him, they filled up the measure of their nation's sin, and brought destruction on the temple and scattering on the whole people. Take away, applied to place here, must mean destroy. Thus Matthew chapter 24 verse 39, the flood took them away. Some, as Heinsius and Bloomfield, think that our place means the city, Jerusalem. Some, as Oldshausen and Alfred, think that our place means our country. Others, as Maldonatus, Hutchison, Poole, and Hammond, with whom I entirely agree, think our place means the temple. Compare Acts chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Lamp thinks this view is proved by Micah chapter 1, verse 3. Calvin observes how many people in his day were always hanging back from helping the Protestant Reformation from the very same motives of these Jews, the fear of consequences. We must consult public tranquility. There are dangers in the way. Verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas. This man, by comparing Acts chapter 5, verse 17, would seem to have been of the sect of the Sadducees. We also know that he was the son-in-law of Annas, of whom Josephus specially mentions that he was a Sadducee. If this view be correct, and Geisy, Gill, Scott, and Lamp agree with me in it, it rather accounts for the contemptuous way in which he seems to speak in replying here to the sayings of the Pharisees. It is remarkable, however, to observe how Pharisees and Sadducees, who disagreed on so many points, were agreed in hating and opposing Christ. Formalists and skeptics, in all ages, make common cause against the gospel. Being high priest, same year. This expression shows the disorder and irregularity which prevailed in the Jewish church in our Lord's time. According to the law of Moses, the office of high priest was tenable for life. In the last days of the Jews, the office seems to have been obtainable by election and to have been held with great variety of term. Caiaphas was high priest when John the Baptist began his ministry and Annas with him, Luke chapter 3, verse 2. He was also high priest after the day of Pentecost and before the persecution of Stephen. No wonder St. Paul says on a subsequent occasion of Ananias, I wist not that he was the high priest. Acts chapter 23, verse 2. Poole remarks, After Herod's time, there was no regard to the family of Aaron, but the Romans made what high priests they pleased. Josephus tells us that the Jews had thirteen high priests from Aaron to Solomon, which was six hundred and twelve years. 18 from Solomon to the Babylonian captivity, which was 460 years, 15 from the captivity to Antiochus, which was 414 years, but they had no less than 28 between the time that Herod began to reign and Jerusalem was destroyed, which was less than a century. Said, ye know nothing at all. The word rendered ye is here emphatic in the Greek. 
it seems not unlikely that it expresses Caiaphas's contempt for the ignorance and helplessness of the Pharisees' question. You and all your party do not understand what the situation of things requires. You are wasting time in complaints and expressions of vexation, when a sterner, severer policy is imperatively demanded. Chrysostom remarks, What others made matter of doubt, and put forth in the way of deliberation, this man cries aloud shamelessly, openly and audaciously, One must die. Pierce thinks that some of the Jews in council must have talked of only putting a stop to Christ's preaching, as they afterwards tried to stop the apostles, Acts chapter 4, verse 18. But the Caiaphas ridiculed such weak counsel and advised more violent measures. May we not suppose that Nicodemus and others spoke in favor of our Lord? Verse 50. Nor consider. The word thus rendered is almost always translated reason, and nowhere consider except here. It seems to imply that Caiaphas wished the Pharisees to know that they had not reasoned out and properly weighed the right thing to be done, hence the perplexity. He would not show them the conclusion they ought to have come to. It is expedient, one die, whole, perish not. Caiaphas's conclusion is short and decisive. He gives it elliptically. This man must die. It is far better that one should die, whether innocent or not, for the benefit of the whole nation, than that the whole nation should be brought into trouble and perish. You are thinking that if we do not let this man alone and interfere, we are injuring an innocent person. Away with such childish scruples. Let him be put out of the way. It is expedient to kill him. Better he should die to save the nation from further trouble than live and the nation be brought into trouble by him. I cannot suppose that Caiaphas meant anything more than this. He simply argues that Christ's death would be a public benefit, and that to spare him might bring destruction on the nation. Of the full meaning that his words were capable of bearing, I do not believe he had the least idea. Let us carefully note here what crimes and sins may be committed on the grounds of expediency. None are so likely to be tempted to commit such sins as rulers and governors. None are so likely to do things unjust, dishonest, and oppressive as a government under the pressure of the spurious argument that it is expedient that the few should suffer, rather than the many should take harm. For political expediency Christ was crucified. What a fact that is! Ought we not rather to ask always what is just, what is right, what is honorable in the sight of God? That which is morally wrong can never be politically right. To govern only for the sake of pleasing and benefiting the majority, without any reference to the eternal principles of justice, right, and mercy, may be expedient and please man, but it does not please God. Calvin observes, Let us never learn to separate what is useful and expedient from what is lawful, since we ought not to expect any prosperity and success, but from the blessing of God. Echolampadius remarks that we must never do evil that good may come. If you could, by the slaying of one good man, work the saving of many, it would be unlawful. Poole observes, Never was anything spoken more diabolically. Like a wretched politician, concerned for nothing but the people's safety, Caiaphas saith, Not it is lawful, but it is expedient for us that one man, be he never so good, never so innocent and just, should die. Doddridge remarks, When will the politicians of this world learn to trust God in his own ways, rather than to trust themselves and their own wisdom, in violation of all rules of truth, honor, and conscience? Verses 51 and 52. 
and this spake he not of himself, etc. These two verses contain a parenthetical comment by St. John on the address of Caiaphas to the Pharisees. It is a peculiar passage, and not without difficulty, that a man like Caiaphas should be said to prophesy, and that his prophecy should be of so wide and extensive a character is undoubtedly strange. I offer a few remarks that may help to throw light on the passage. That God can employ a wicked man to declare prophetical truth is clearly proved by the case of Balaam. But the positions of Balaam and Caiaphas were very different. That the Jewish high priest at any time possessed, by virtue of his office, the power of predicting things to come, I can nowhere find. David certainly speaks of Zadok as a seer, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 27. The high priest's ephod conveyed a certain mysterious power to the wearer of foreseeing things immediately near, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 9. The Urim and Thummim, whatever they were, which dwelt in the breastplate of the high priest, appear to have given the wearer peculiar powers of discernment. But even they were withdrawn at the destruction of the first temple. In short, there is an utter absence of proof that a Jewish high priest, in the time of our Lord, had any power of prophesying. I believe that the verses before us are very elliptical, and require much to be supplied in order to convey the meaning of St. John. The only satisfactory sense I can put upon the passage will be found in the following free paraphrase. This spake he not of himself. He spoke these words, though he was not aware of it, under the influence of an overruling power, making him say things of far deeper meaning than he was conscious of himself. As Echolampadius says, God used him as an instrument. See Isaiah chapter 10, verse 15. But being high priest that year, he prophesied. He spoke words which, as the event showed afterwards, were eminently prophetical, and the fact that they fell from his lips when he was high priest made them more remarkable when afterwards remembered and noted. That Jesus should die for that nation. He actually foretold, though the fulfillment was in a manner very different from his intentions, that Jesus would die for the benefit of the Jewish nation and not for that nation only, etc. He also foretold what was practically fulfilled afterwards, though in a way marvelously unlike what he thought, that Jesus would not only die for the Jewish nation, but for the benefit of all God's children at present scattered all over the world. The utmost, in fact, that I can make of John's explanatory comment is that he remarks on the extraordinary manner in which Caiaphas' words prove true, though in a way that he never intended, wished, or expected. He lets fall a saying on a great public occasion, which comes from his lips with great authority on account of his office as high priest. That saying was afterwards fulfilled in the most marvelous manner by the overruling providence of God, but in a way that the speaker never dreamed of. The thing was afterwards remembered and remarked on, and it seemed, says St. John, as if being high priest that year, he was miraculously compelled by the Holy Ghost to prophesy the redemption of mankind at the very time that he thought he was only speaking of putting Christ to death. Caiaphas, in short, meant nothing but to advise the murder of Christ, but the Holy Ghost obliged him unconsciously to use words which were a most remarkable prediction of Christ's death bringing life to a lost world. The Greek word rendered should die would be more literally was about to die. It simply expresses a future coming event. The children of God scattered abroad, I believe, mean the elect of God among the Gentiles. They are put in contrast with that nation, or the nation, as it would be more literally rendered. 
The gathering together in one, I believe to be that final gathering of all Christ's members, which is yet to come at his second advent. See Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, John chapter 12 verse 32, Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. Lightfoot says, The Jews thought the greatest work of Messiah was to be the reduction, or gathering together, of the captives. I leave the passage with a very deep sense of its difficulty, and desire not to press my views on others dogmatically, if they are not satisfied with them. Chrysostom remarks, Caiaphas prophesied, not knowing what he said, and the grace of God merely made use of his mouth, but touched not his accursed heart. Musculus and Ferris remark how striking the resemblance is between Caiaphas unintentionally using language, fulfilled in a sense totally unlike what he meant, and the Jews saying of Christ to Pilate, His blood be on us and our children. They little knew the awful and tremendous extent of the saying. The absurdity of the Roman Catholic claim that the Pope's words and decrees are to be received as partially inspired because of his office, on the ground of this passage, is noted and exposed by all the Protestant commentators of the 17th century. Lightfoot thinks we should lay great emphasis on the expression, that same year, and justly so. He observes that it was the very year when the high priest's office ended, and the veil was rent, and the Jewish dispensation wound up, and the Mosaic priesthood abrogated by Christ becoming manifestly our priest. He thinks St. Paul, in Acts chapter 23, verse 5, I wist not that he was the high priest, may have meant that he did not know there was any high priest at all. He also observes that this very year at Pentecost, the Holy Ghost was poured out as the spirit of prophecy and revelation in an extraordinary measure. What wonder if, that year, the last high priest, like Balaam, should prophesy? Verse 53. Then from that day, counsel, death. We see here the result of Caiaphas's counsel. His stern, bold, outspoken proposal carried all the counsel with him, and even if Gamaliel, Nicodemus, and Joseph were there, their voices were silenced. From that very day it became a settled thing with the Jewish leaders at Jerusalem that Jesus was to be put to death. The only difficulty was to find the way, the time, and the means of doing it without creating a tumult. The great miracle just wrought at Bethany would doubtless increase the number of our Lord's adherents and make it necessary to use caution in carrying out the murderous plan. The conclusions of great ecclesiastical councils are seldom wise and good, and sometimes are wicked and cruel. Bold, forward, unscrupulous men like Caiaphas generally silence the quieter members and carry all before them. Verse 54. Jesus therefore walked, Jews. From this time our Lord found it necessary to give up appearing openly at Jerusalem, and came there no more till the week of his crucifixion. He knew the result of the council just held, either from his own divine knowledge or from the information of friends like Nicodemus, and as his time was not fully come, he retired from Judea for a season. The expression, no more, is literally not yet. It must mean, no more at present. May we not learn from our Lord's conduct that it may be a duty sometimes not to court danger or death. There are seasons when it is a duty to retire, as well as seasons for going forward. There are times to be silent, as well as times to speak. Hutchison remarks, It is lawful for Christ's servants to flee when their death is decreed by enemies, and the persecution is personal. Went thence, wilderness, Ephraim, disciples. Nothing whatever is known for certain of the distinct locality to which our Lord retired, or of the city here named. It seems, purposefully, to have been a quiet, 
isolated, and little frequented place. The probability is that it was beyond Jordan, in Perea, because when our Lord came to Jerusalem the last time, he passed through Jericho. Ellicott suggests that Ephraim was a town called also Ophrah, about twenty miles north of Jerusalem, on the borders of Samaria. He also thinks that on leaving Ephraim, those words of St. Luke, chapter 17, verse 11, come in, which say that our Lord passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. After that, he thinks he went through Perea to Jericho, but I am not satisfied that he proves these points. It is worth noticing that our Lord chose a scene of entire quiet and seclusion as his last abode, before going up to his last great season of suffering at the crucifixion. It is well to get alone and be still before we take in hand any great work for God. Our Savior was not above this. How much more should his disciples remember it? In saying this, I would not be thought to command the ostentatious retreats of the Romish church and its followers. It is of the very essence of Christian retirement, if it is to be profitable, that it should be without parade and should not attract the notice of men. The life of the Aramite had no warrant in Scripture. When it says that our Lord continued or tarried at Ephraim with his disciples, it is worth noticing that we do not hear a word of any public works that he did there. It looks as if he devoted the last few quiet days that remained before his crucifixion to uninterrupted communion with the Father and private instruction of his disciples. Verse 55, and Jews' Passover nigh at hand. This expression, like many others in John's Gospel, shows that he wrote for the church generally, and for many readers who were not familiar with Jewish feasts and customs. And many went, country, before Passover. This seems mentioned as a simple matter of custom among the Jews, and not as a thing done this year more than any other. They always did so, and thus drew together, for seven days before the Passover, a larger collection of people at Jerusalem than at any other time of the year. Hence the crowds and expectation when our Lord appeared. He had been talked of by people from all parts of Palestine. To purify themselves. This refers to the ceremonial washings, purifications, and atonements for ceremonial uncleanness, which all strict Jews were careful to go through before eating the Passover. See Second Chronicles chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. It is impossible to read the book of Leviticus carefully and not be struck with the almost endless number of ways in which an Israelite could become ceremonially unclean and need going to the priest to have an atonement made. See Numbers chapter 9, verses 6 to 11. That the Pharisees in such matters added to the legal strictness by their absurd scrupulosity, such as straining at a gnat, we cannot doubt. But the simple law as it stood was a yoke that was very hard to bear. No wonder that thousands of devout Jews came anxiously before the Passover to Jerusalem to be made ceremonially clean and fit for the feast. It is worth noting how singular particular men are sometimes about forms and ceremonies and outward correctness, while they coolly plan and execute enormous crimes. The Jews, zealous about purifying themselves while they were planning the murder of Christ, have had their imitators and followers in every age of the church. Strictness about forms and ceremonies and utter recklessness about gross sin are found quite compatible in many hearts. Verse 56. Then sought they, Jesus, and spake, etc., etc. The persons here mentioned seem to me to have been the Jews from all parts of Palestine, mentioned in the last verse, who had come up to prepare for the Passover. The fame and history of our Lord were probably so great throughout Palestine that one of the first inquiries the comers would make of one another would be about him. 
and as they stood in the temple court, waiting for their turn to go through ceremonial purification, or talking with old friends and acquaintances who had come up, like themselves, from the country, Jesus would probably be a principal topic of conversation. What think ye that come not feast? This is mentioned as one of the principal inquiries made by the Jews of one another. Our Lord, on a former occasion, had not come up to the Passover. See John chapter 6. They might, therefore, naturally feel doubtful whether he would come now. It is noteworthy that the question admits of being taken as one or divided into two distinct ones. Some think that it means, What think ye of the question whether he will come to the feast or not? Others hold that it means, What think ye of Christ, and especially of his position at this time? Do you think that he will not come to the feast? I myself prefer this view. It is noteworthy that the very question with which our Lord confounded the Pharisees a few days after, as recorded in St. Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, begins with precisely the same Greek words as those here used. What think ye of Christ? Verse 57. Now both priests, Pharisees, etc., etc. This verse shows the first steps which had been taken after the session of the council, which adopted the advice of Caiaphas to kill Jesus. A general order had been given that if any man knew where Jesus lodged in Jerusalem, he was to give information, in order that he might be apprehended. I cannot help thinking myself that this order must only have referred to Jerusalem and the house where our Lord might lodge when he came to the Passover, if he did come. I cannot suppose that our Lord's enemies could be ignorant where he was between the miracle of Bethany and the Passover. But I fancy they dared not run the risk of a tumult or rebellion, which might be caused if they sent into the rural districts to apprehend him. Indeed, it is doubtful whether the jurisdiction of the priests and Pharisees extended beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and whether they could lay hands upon our Lord anywhere outside the city. This might have been the reason why he often lodged at Bethany. Musculus here discusses the question, whether obedience to the powers that be obliges us to give up a man to those who are seeking to apprehend him. He answers, decidedly not, if we believe him to be an innocent man. End of section 24